good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. I'd like to say welcome to our virtual crowd as well. And I'm so thankful to have the opportunity for us to gather together. Um, for those of you that are in person, and I'm thankful that the virtual audience has the opportunity to gather with us in the way uh, that, that you guys are. I think over the last year, the Lord has uh, really taught me um, the value of, uh, at least at the bare minimum, this, this weekly gathering together with other believers. Um, I've always known it to be, at least since uh, my conversion, something that was necessary and right and just sort of part of, of what we do. But in the last year, um, with, with the chaos that has just abounded all around us, um, I've, I've, I've just really begin to understand in a, in a deeper sense how important it is to be able to gather together with other believers and open God's Word together and, and to hear from Him together. Um, we have collectively gone through a lot of difficult times over the last few months. Um, the thing that I'm sure you've noticed as well by now that uh, normal circumstances or normal difficulties haven't changed. And so there's still marriages that are struggling. There's still parent-child relationships that are struggling. There's still job situations that are, that are difficult, and those things would have already been true, but on top of just the chaos that abounds around us, um, I think we've all um, would admit that the last few months have been terribly difficult, to say the least. And so um, this, this time each week is, is vitally important, and I promise you that's not just pastor talk. Like, I'm not just saying that because of, of the fact that I'm standing on this stage behind this pulpit. I, I promise you it's not. It, it, it's a valuable time, and it's a time that the Lord ministers to us and speaks to us in a very unique way as we open His Word together week after week. And so we'll pick up this morning in Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. We'll continue our journey through the book of Exodus. And as I said last week, I want, I want to just reiterate it, and I might for a couple of weeks. Um, we're going to be in the law for a while, all right? And so that means that it, it takes more work on my part to be able to communicate this in a way that is is easy for easier for you to understand. And I'm, I'm not going to always be successful at that. And uh, yeah, so that's just true. And, and so I said last week, it's really important for you guys to do some reading of your own. Um, one of the beauties of preaching verse by verse is that you know where we'll be. And so we'll be in Exodus at least until October or November of, of this year. And, and so for the next few months, Lord willing, that's, that's where we'll be. But, but the law, uh, because of its content, it's not going to be as easy for you to maybe come in here or as easy for me to come in here and preach something that's just a really simple narrative to understand, like, like, like just a storyline to understand. There's going to be some details and some specific things that are going to take some extra legwork for us to see and understand and certainly for us to apply, okay? And in this section today, even though it's only three, three verses or so, there's a lot to say around these things. And Brandon asked me in between the first and second service, he said, well, what'd you think? And it's rare, like, I don't know if I've ever looked at Brandon and said, I killed it. You know, that was a great sermon. I mean, that was, that was a really good sermon I just preached. Um, so I was like, man, I, I don't know. I guess it was all right. Like, I, I really feel like, that, you know, there's just some, some, some topics in these few verses that we could really spend a little bit more time on, but we just don't have the luxury this morning to spend as much time on them as we need to be. But that's not necessarily a bad thing, because, uh, because I do think initially it's important for us to hear all of this together. And, and so we'll dive in, beginning in verse 4 of Exodus chapter 20, and we'll go through verse 6. And this is the second commandment. And so hear from the word of the Lord. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I've already expressed... Um, to my brothers and sisters this morning, how grateful I am for this opportunity for us to gather um, together and to hear from you. 
And so we now say thank you for giving us this opportunity. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that we have something before us today that is living, that's, that's active, that is sharper than any double-edged sword, meaning it can pierce to the very core of who we are. And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach us this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be with me as I speak and proclaim. Lord, we know that unless you act, unless you work, unless your word is preached, what we do this morning is in vain. And we don't want that. Um, Father, our heart and desire is that you and you alone are glorified. And so I pray that you would teach us um, what it means to obey the second commandment. I pray that you would help us to see and understand areas of our lives as individuals and maybe as a church that we violate the second commandment. Most of all, I pray that we would see um, just your faithfulness to your people throughout um, our time this morning. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. So if you're like me, and maybe you're not, that's not a bad thing, but since I remember hearing the Ten Commandments for the first time, I remember having this thought that the first commandment and the second commandment seem to be very similar. Like I've often wondered, well, why would that not be just, just one commandment? In fact, if you have a Lutheran background or if you have a Roman Catholic background, then you know that th these first two commandments as we've taught them are actually one commandment and they, get, they still have ten commandments but they get their tenth commandment by splitting the commandment on, on coveting. But most Reformed Protestant traditions believe that this is to be one commandment in verse 3 and the second commandment in, ver in, in verse 4 and I believe that's right. And I want to give you two statements to sort of launch us into this that will be on the screen behind me that if you're a note taker these will be helpful for you to kind of understand where we're going with this. But the first commandment, which I dealt with last week, the first commandment has to do with worshiping the right God. And, and we uh, dealt with this a lot in our time together last week, but it, it, that should be obvious. Like, like if you um, can get this part right, then there's a really good chance that the rest of it falls into place. Okay? But the second commandment has to do with worshiping the right God in the right way. So the first commandment has to do with worshiping the right God. The second commandment has to do with worshiping the right God in the right way. And so you see there's actually a, a, big, a, a big difference in the two. And one thing, I want to kind of set the tone in this way. Friends, it's vitally important still today in 2021 that we take the second commandment seriously. God has prescribed ways for us to worship that we are to obey. We do not have the freedom to worship the Lord in any old way that we want to. We do not have the freedom to understand God in any old way that we want to or in ways that just make us feel good about ourselves. And, and again, I want to say this, and I say this with compassion, so don't hear this as like some sort of like legalistic, you know, hellfire type preaching, but I want to say it because I think it's true. God communicates himself, and what he has in mind is not, first and foremost, the way we feel about it. He's not concerned with how we feel about who he actually is. The main reason the Lord communicates himself in the way that he does is because that's actually who he is, and he knows that what's best for us is to know him for who he actually is. And so if we get the first commandment right and we, and, and we say, okay, well, this is the right God, but we don't worship the right God in the right way, as we'll see today, there is some, there's some danger. We're going to see warnings around violating the, the second commandment. And so most of the commentaries that I read, and, and sermons that I explored in my preparation for this had, had this section framed in the same way. So we're going to follow suit. And it's framed up in this way. The rule, the reason, the warning, and the promise. And, and so if you want to jot that down in your notebook, you can jot the rule down, skip some lines because you'll have some notes to take there, and then do the same thing with the following. But it'll be the rule, the reason, the warning, and, and the promise. And so let's begin with the rule. The rule is simple. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Now, some of your translations, if you have a King James Version, it says graven image. Some of your translations say idols. But, but what this is speaking to is that the Israelites were strictly forbidden to make images. Now, this is key if you want to write this down. They're strictly forbidden to make images of God for worship. 
Now remember their context. Remember, they come out of Egypt. They've been in Egypt for the last um, 400 or so years, and all they know of religious worship is this polytheism that we talked about last week. Uh, I mean, Egypt had no issues with multiple gods, and that's the way they worship some of their gods. Some of them worshiped uh, water, the sun, the moon, gnats. We dealt with all of these things in our journey through the book of Exodus. And so the Lord is letting them know now that He is not to be worshipped in that way. Because there's certainly a threat that they maybe get the first commandment right and say, hey, we believe this is the right God. But what makes me feel most comfortable in worshiping the right God in the right way is to have my horse with me. And I'm being a little facetious here, but somebody could say, well, the horse just makes me feel uh, strong and it makes me feel protected and that makes me think of the Lord. And so they would have to have the horse in order to worship. Now, that's sort of a silly example, but if, I mean, you might get fill in the blank. There might be things in your life today that you would say, I have to have this in order to worship the Lord. And this is a, that's a good exercise to try to evaluate our own hearts and lives to see if we are in fact violating the second commandment. And, and so God clarifies this um, list of representations that He forbids in, in, um, in the rest of verse 4. He says, You shall not make for yourself the carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. So, so he pretty much covers everything, right? You are not to worship me with any sort of image, whether it's an image that is part of his creation, or it's an image that you have actually carved with your own hands. Now, does it seem strange to you that this finds itself as number two on the list of the top ten biblical principles of Christianity. I mean, what, what harm is there in a worshiper who has the first commandment right? What harm is there in the worshiper surrounding themselves with a statue or an, an image if it helps him or her lift their heart to God? I mean, couldn't you see this like um, being like we have to think of things in the context that we're in. So in 2021, I, I, I mean, and I'm standing before you today and I'm preaching to you about the second commandment. And so there's a chance that you hear the words that I'm saying. and We hear the words of the Lord and you go, come on, man, that, that, that's a little bit overkill. Like, why would you be overly concerned with the way that I worship the Lord? I, look, I, I believe in the one true God, but this is just the way that I feel like I can worship him best. It seems like that this might fall under the category of personal preference. Or, what harm is there in someone having a genuine desire to worship the Lord in a way that makes them feel most like they're worshiping? Well, I want to illustrate that. If you'll turn over a couple of pages to your right to Exodus chapter 32. Because what we have in Exodus 32, and we'll be here in a few weeks, is uh, that we're coming to the tail end of the giving of the law. Moses has not come down the mountain yet, and the people of God are getting restless. And so I do think this, and, and I could be wrong, okay, so just know that. But, but from what I understand now about what's going on in Exodus 32, I believe that the people of God, because like you and I, they were created to worship. They were made to worship. And so everybody here this morning... Everybody here this morning is worshiping something, okay? That, that is just true. Now, um, you may not be worshiping the Lord, and we dealt with that last week too, but we're made to worship. We're made to love things. We're made to exalt things. We're made to celebrate things. There are certain things that if we lose them, they make us sad. There are things we spend our money on. There are things we spend our time on. There are things that we hope in. And if you follow that trail out of your time, money, thoughts, and you know, kind of um, what you desire most or what brings you security, if you follow that trail out, there is a throne there. And on that throne, whoever is on that throne, whatever is on that throne, is your functioning God. And so I think that they genuinely desire to worship they genuinely desire to celebrate. In fact, they genuinely desire to worship and celebrate <laughs> Yahweh. Watch what happens. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. 
As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with, graving, with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Now let me pause there. I asked the question a second ago. Well, why in the world would this find uh, it, its place as the second commandment that the Lord gives His people? You know, it's almost as if the Lord knew what His people were going to do as soon as this whole ordeal was over. Again, he did know that, by the way, just, just for the record. All right, so, so he, he did know, and, and notice the language of, of what they do. They fashioned it with graving tools. So they come out of the gate, literally, they come out of the gate before this thing is even over with, violating the second commandment. They say, hey, we don't know what happened to Moses, but we, um, we I'm paraphrasing obviously, but we want to worship. So Aaron says, all right, you know what? Go get all of the earrings. Um, I'm sorry, all the gold rings that are in the ears. Yeah, earrings that are in the ears of your wives. Go bring them to me, your sons. They probably should have taken the sons out sooner than now, I'm just saying. Um, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. And they melt the gold down into a pot and they begin to fashion this calf. Now, I, I don't, I, like, I actually like cows. I'm not overly impressed with cows. I think they taste good. That's my best, like, like, that's the best I can give a cow. I mean, they're fun to watch. And if you love animals, I actually love animals too. We just kind of love them in different ways maybe, okay? So, but they, they make this calf. And for us, we say calf, like, what would be the big deal? Well, for them, this would be a representation. This would be a steer, which would be a young bull. This would be um, a representation of strength and stability, so watch what happens. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel. Listen to this. Who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to who? The Lord. Which is the Hebrew word that we saw, we were introduced to in Exodus chapter 3, is Yahweh. And so they have a genuine desire to worship Yahweh, but they do it in a way that makes sense to them by making the golden calf that is meant to be a visible symbol of the gods who brought you up out of Egypt. And Aaron knows this and recognizes this, and he calls for a feast, and the feast is to be unto the Lord. And, and so I, I don't think, and again, I could be wrong, but I don't think that there's any doubt that this was meant to, that this image was meant to, to honor the Lord as a symbol of His strength. But what this actually was, was something that was detestable to the Lord. We're going to see the Lord lose His mind. And I know that's anthropomorphic language, okay? But I'm, I, you know, just to help us understand, like the Lord gets very angry because of how the people respond. So much so that we see Moses, we're, we're going to see Moses intercede on behalf of the people so that the Lord relents on his wrath that he wants to pour out on, on them. But this golden calf veiled God's glory. Why is that? Are y'all ready for this? Like, this is profound. Are you ready? Why did the golden calf make God so angry and why did it veil his glory? Because it wasn't him. Like, it's that simple. It wasn't him. And even if it represented one part of an attribute of him in regards to his strength or his power, it still was incomplete. It was inadequate. But even primarily, it's not the way that the Lord revealed himself. If the Lord at Mount Sinai would have come bebopping down the mountain as a golden steer and spoke to the people that way, then they would have been spot on right here. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, and, and you guys, this, this was a game changer for me. So if you are having trouble following, I, I hope this brings some clarity because for me in my study, I was like, man, all right, so some dots are starting to connect. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 15, listen to this. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. So again, this is, this is he, he, he's letting them know the seriousness that's around what he's about to say. Watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw, here it is, since you saw no form, 
on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. If you underline or highlight, okay? Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke. That's the key. How did God choose to reveal himself? It was not in a visible form. But what did he do? He spoke. The Lord, the Lord spoke. And so what they did in Exodus 32 was detestable to the Lord primarily because they're not to worship the Lord in a way that he hasn't prescribed. The Lord spoke. He didn't come in a visible form. I read a quote from John Calvin this week that was very helpful for me, and I hope it is for you. Calvin says this, A true image of God is not to be found in all the world, and hence His glory defiled and His truth corrupted by the lie whenever He is set before our eyes in a visible form. Therefore, to devise any image of God is itself impious. That means irreverent. Because by this corruption, His majesty is adulterated, and He is figured to be other than He is. That is the key. He is figured to be other than He actually is. So I think a fair question is, well, where does this begin? Where does this begin? We've talked about our desire to worship, our desire to um, celebrate things, and to glorify things, and to honor things. And so if we're beginning to see that our honor and our celebrating and our worship and our bowing down has to go, has to go to Yahweh. It has to go to the God of the Bible because He is the only true God. But we also understand that there can be, uh, I mean, obviously a, a temptation for us to worship Him in a way that He hasn't prescribed and to violate the second commandment. So where does this begin? Like, did the whole golden calf deal just begin? Like, did their hands just out of nowhere just start doing this? No. Like, like any sin, where does it begin? It begins in our mind. Which I think, again, assuming you have a concern, and we should, to not want to violate the second commandment. The second commandment also forbids us to embrace any sort of mental images of the Lord's. And, and, and the reason is because imagining in our heads can be just as real a breach of the second commandment as a carved image. I mean, think of this. How many times maybe have you said or have you heard someone say this sort of thing? I like to think of God as blank. Or I don't think of God as blank. And very often remarks of this kind serve as sort of a prelude to a denial of something that the Bible plainly tells us about God. And so we sin whenever we, air quotes, worship an image of God rather than listening to His Word. And friends, that can be a movie. There are a lot of movies. There are a lot of books that claim to portray God in a way that is contrary to His Word. They feel good. And I've had some nice little conversations with people around some of these because they say, well, it just helps me understand God. I like to see God and understand God in that way. But the problem is, is it's contrary to the way that the Bible portrays God. And so for them, the primary source at that moment of their understanding who God is, is not Holy Scripture, it's the book. It doesn't have to be a movie or a book, it can be a song, it can be a picture, it can be a thought. One of the biggest dangers, and I think the schemes that the enemy uses with these sort of physical and mental images of God that aren't real is they keep us from hearing God's actual voice. And the way God revealed Himself at Mount Sinai was not through a visible image, but through an audible word. That has not changed. You know, the reason, the reason that we open this book every single week it's because we believe that this is the primary way that the Lord has revealed Himself. I mean, think of how consistently, like throughout the Bible, we hear that the Lord speaks and things happen. How, how did things come to be? He spoke them into existence. How did God reveal Himself at Sinai? 
He spoke them through an audible word. John chapter 1 verse 1 tells us this about Jesus. In the beginning was the what? Word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And so the word of God is the primary way that the Lord has revealed himself to us. Now, just, just for clarity, this doesn't forbid art. This doesn't forbid other types of expression, but it does say that if you're going to be an artist, or if you are an artist, or if you have other ways that you want to express what you know or think you know or believe about God, then the scriptures have to be your primary source for that. Not the way you feel. Not what makes you think nice, happy thoughts. Because I promise you, if you've spent much time in the Bible, then you're going to read something about the Lord and His sovereignty and His, His, His bigness that, I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to frighten you. It's not going to always make you feel the way that you want to feel. And so we need to be aware of these type impulses because these type impulses, when acted on, friends, I, can, I, I want to be clear, it's sin. It's idolatry. And so that's the rule. The reason. We must be careful for this reason. Look at verse... Let me go back to Exodus. Look at verse 5. You shall not bow down, to, uh, bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, jealousy does not get much positive publicity, right? And I've said this both services, didn't get much out of it. I'm, I'm not looking for a laugh. I'm just really trying to illustrate. But when I think jealousy, unfortunately, my mind goes to Jerry Springer. If, if you're 30s or 40s, then you have probably a history of Montel Williams and Jerry Springer. And so when I think jealousy, I think of the boyfriend that comes out at the end that causes everybody to fight and it gets really bad and they, cut the, and they have to cut the show off. And so I, I don't know what you think about when you think of jealousy but generally, when people talk about jealousy, they think about envy. They think about somebody that has a desire to get something that doesn't belong to them. They think of some obsessed person. Or, friends, listen, a lot of human jealousy is rooted in this insecurity. Like they're just this insecure, obsessed lover or individual. And so what in the world could it mean? Like this is an attribute of God. God is a jealous God. And so he's not insecure. Right? He's not obsessed with us. So what does it mean? Well, when something really does belong to you, there are times when it needs to be protected. And, and what God has is a holy jealousy. And a holy jealousy is one that guards someone's rightful possession. I, I think the most obvious example for us is the love between a husband and a wife. It's right to be jealous for your spouse. It's, it's necessary to be jealous for your spouse. And I know as humans, there's the sin, the, the insecurity, and the, uh, you know, the obsessive, compulsive type behavior creeps in. But there is a holy jealousy that is to be understood and experienced within a marriage because this type jealousy stems from a deep love and a total commitment. Holy jealousy stems from a love that is exclusive, a love that's passionate, a love that's intense, a love that, we might as well use the word, that could be described as jealous. One commentator explained it this way. Godly jealousy is not the insecure, insane, and possessive human jealousy that we often interpret this word to mean. Rather, oh, this is so good, it is an intensely caring devotion to the objects of His love. Like a mother's jealous protection of her children. If, if you've ever coached Little League Baseball, you know exactly what he's talking about right there. A father's jealous guarding of his home. And so the reason for the rule, the reason for the commandment, is because God is a jealous God. And the reason that God is jealous... It's because he loves his people. And he knows what's best for his people. And what's best for his people is for him to reveal himself in the way that he actually is and for them to believe by faith in him as he actually is and for them to worship him as he actually is. Because if his people do not worship him for who he actually is, then friends, they're not worshiping him. And that's not what's best for him. I'm sorry, for them. And so this, this jealousy flows out of 
is love. And so God certainly has the right to tell us how He wants to be worshipped. And He's commanded us not to spurn His love by turning Him into something that He's not. And that's essentially just the, the second commandment boiled down in a nutshell is the Lord does not want to be worshipped as something that He's not. Next, the warning. Verse 5, the last part of verse 5. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. This is one part of this section that probably deserves a little bit more time in unpacking. Because there's some seriousness here. And, and in fact, there's some intensity here. Like you read that and probably your first thought was similar to my first thought and going, whoa, 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 hold on, time out. So I mean, I can be personally punished for the sins of my father? Like how does that work? How, like how is that fair? Or the father could be, or, or the mother could be personally punished for the sins of their children? Well, before we deal with that, I want to try to express to you why I believe this warning is as intense as it is. I think this warning is so intense and as intense as it is because it's directly proportional to the depths of His love for them. He loves His people. And so He warns them in a way that is intense because He doesn't want them to violate the second commandment because He loves them. And if you're a parent, then you should have a little bit of an understanding about this because we give our children rules and when they don't understand the rule or don't want to obey the rule, like I, I, I remember, I don't know if all our kids, I know at least two or three of them, I, I remember Titus and Calvin actually playing with knives and they're about toddler age from loading the dishwasher and they're crawling around pulling up and they pull out a knife you know, out of the thing that we've just put in there to be washed and they're holding it and playing with it and, and you take it from them and what do they do? They freak out. They, they, you're the worst person in the world. Like why would you take this awesome toy from me? Because we love them. And we know how dangerous that could be for a toddler. And so the intensity of the warning is directly proportional to the depths of his love for him because he feels so deeply. He responds vigorously when the relationship is threatened. Now, this warning is not meant to be a denial of the individual responsibility as each person is actually accountable for their own sins. I don't think we should read this and go, okay, so I'm personally responsible for the sins of my fathers. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, there's some clarity here. And this isn't the primary point of this passage, but I, I just want to take a second on this little rabbit trail to make sure that we don't... Now, I'm assuming you're thinking about it, because I did. Ezekiel 18, verse 20 says, "...the soul who sins shall die." The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him himself. And so Ezekiel brings clarity here that we have personal responsibility, and we will be personally responsible for our sins. And, and so the point of this in Exodus chapter 20 is for those who persist in hating the Lord. Did you notice that word? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers, uh, fathers for the third and fourth generation of those who what? Hate me. And so the point here is not for us to get distracted by, well, am I supposed to pay for the sins of my fathers or vice versa? What the Lord's doing is, is, is He's letting them know and He's letting us know the seriousness of violating this command. Those who consistently violate the second commandment, the Lord describes them as those who hate Him. And when fathers and mothers hate God and don't take God seriously, guess what that produces most of the time? Children who hate God and don't take God seriously. And what the Lord's saying, hey, this is a warning. Like, if you don't take this seriously, if you hate me and, and, and you live like I'm not a big deal or you don't worship me in the way that I've prescribed, there's a consequence. And there's a really good chance that your children and their children and their children and their children are going to follow suit. Unless, unless the Lord graciously intervenes. And He does. Amen? I'm a, I'm a living example of how the Lord can graciously rescue you out of something like that. 
A lot of you have stories of, you would go, my mom and my dad or whoever raised you, they did not love the Lord. They did not worship Him. And so how did you get to be where you are? It's because the Lord graciously saved you. You can be rescued out of that. I mean, think of Abraham, your father Abraham, right? I mean, we could dance and sing the song. Our father Abraham was chosen and rescued and called by God out of a land of idol worship and a family of idol worship. And so this isn't saying that there's no way out. There is a way out. And it's grace, but it's letting us know how serious this is. And so he gives the warning. And so for those who disregard the commands of God, just the reality is the result can have lasting effects. Sin always affects more than just you. If you're not old enough to have understood that yet, please try to think through that and try to understand that. All right? Whether you want to accept Jesus or you even want to believe in Jesus, you can set that aside if you want to. I'd highly encourage you not to, but you need to understand this basic principle of life is that your sins and your bad choices affect more than just you. Not one of us lives on an island by themselves. Not one of us. We all live in a community. Most of us are in families. So that's what the Lord is teaching us. Like when you do this, when you sin in this way and you choose to walk in this path, there's a consequence. But I love the Lord's eagerness here because He could have put a period right there after, uh, let's see, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. It could have been period right there. Like, stop the thought. Put a period right there. I want them to feel the reality. Like, if I, like, I do that as a dad. Like, I've, I've learned, like, I, like, we are eager to show grace, but I've kind of not voiced that as often. Because we want our kids, like, we want them to feel the consequence. We want them to understand the warning. We want them to take us serious and not just go, oh, well, I mean, even if I mess up, there's still grace. The Lord is not that way. He's not that way. The Lord has an eagerness. Watch this. Verse 6. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God promises to show mercy and steadfast love to those who love Him and keep His commandments. I don't know, like, like, so you can see in the way that it's written that the promise is more powerful than the warning and that the, the warning involves three or four generations. The promise involves thousands. I don't know if that's a literal thing. I'm not really sure how we're supposed to interpret that or understand that. But at the bare minimum, at the bare minimum, you see the Lord's eagerness to bless His people. And so He's telling us how that can happen. He's showing us the way. And so, how does this apply? Now, I know everybody in here today is not a parent. Okay, I know some of you in here may never be parents. And, but if you're part of a family of faith, if you're part of a church, then you have a vital role in what the next generation that comes after us believes and how they live. All right? Now, some of us have a front row seat as biological moms and dads or adoptive moms and dads or grandparents to that actual generation. And so I'm going to zero in on the moms and dads and the grandparents, but that doesn't exclude everybody that's in this room and everybody that was here in the second service and everybody that was here in the first service and, and those who are tuning in virtually. Like we all have a responsibility to live out these commandments in obedience so that with the desire, hope it's your desire, so that a thousand of generations after us, the Lord shows His steadfast love and His mercy to them. Okay? But I do think the Lord is making eye contact with all parents. Parents, our love for the Lord, your, your genuine but flawed example means way more than I think we realize. This passage not only lets us know the far-reaching effects of disobedience, 
It lets us know the far-reaching blessing for those who obey it. And so if you're a mom and dad in here today, or, or you desire to be, or again, like I said, if you're not, and you're asking how to be what my kids and my grandkids or the kids of Covenant Church, like what do they need us to be from the teenagers on down? Like what do they need from us as their moms and dads, as their moms and their spiritual moms and dads, however that falls, what they need from us most is what we've seen the last two Sundays. The first commandment and the second commandment is where we begin. We teach them and we show them who the true God is and we teach them and show them with our words and with our lives how to worship Him in the way that He has prescribed. The greatest thing that we can give our children is the truth about God. Charlie has said this, I don't remember when, but man, it just has stuck in my head. She says, Hank, we have a desire to give our kids the world. And she's right. We see another family get their kids something, and guess what? Hey, I mean, we, our kids need that. And that's not necessarily sinful, but, but as parents, you can have this desire to give your kids the world. You do whatever you can to give them this experience and this fun and these possessions and these opportunities, and you do all of these things when what our kids mainly need from us is Christ. That, that, that's what they need. Phil Riken which I encourage you to get his commentary on Exodus. It's wonderful. He says this, As parents plan for the future, they should be more concerned about the second commandment than they are about their financial portfolio. This commandment contains a solemn warning for fathers. When a man refuses to love God passionately and to worship God properly, the consequences of his sin can last for generations. The guilt of a man who treasures idols in his heart can corrupt his entire family. And in the end, they can all be punished. But a man who loves God supremely, a man who bows down before Him in genuine worship and serves Him with true praise, can see the blessing of God rest on his household forever. And then he closes with these three questions, and they are profound. What kind of life are you leading? What kind of worship are you giving? And this one, oh, it stuck with me. What kind of legacy will you leave behind? What's your legacy? If we checked out today, what will people remember most about who we are and what we've done? And, and particularly parents. This is, he says, fathers to their children and, and to the next generation's parents. If we check out today, what is it that our kids will see and know and follow? There's a man, pastor named... Grant Castleberry, he's a pastor in the Midwest. Um, he, he often writes articles for Table Talk magazine. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Table Talk, but it's a really neat resource. I believe it's free. Is it free? No. Anyway, it's worth the money. I'm not sure what it costs. But when I was thinking of legacy this week, I came across this article in Table Talk magazine from Grant Castleberry. He says, my father, Kelly Castleberry, stepped into eternity on September 23rd, 1986, when he was just 26 years old. So at the time that his father died, Grant was three years old. He was involved in a Marine Corps plane crash over the Atlantic Ocean. And for a week afterward, Navy search and rescue teams combed the ocean, but his body was never recovered. Still today, his official status remains lost at sea, presumed dead. A few months before he died, he was invited to a mandatory call sign party with his squadron at a beach house, where each new pilot was to receive his call sign. Unbeknownst to him, strippers were also invited to the party. Instead of taking part in the festivities of the evening, he stood in the back corner of the room with his hand over his eyes, refusing to look. After his death... One of the other pilots gave my mom a picture that was taken during that evening. And sure enough, in the back of the picture, you can see my father with his hand covering his eyes. And as I write this book, I'm looking at that picture, which sits always on my desk and has had a profound impact on my life. The legacy of purity that he left will always be with me. And I will teach it to my son 
and daughters and to their children. In doing so, we honor my Father. But most importantly, we honor God. Friends, you can tell what mattered most to the person by what they leave behind when they depart this world. It's true. And look, I get it. Like, I knew just the, the, the nature of this conversation this morning could make so much, like, weird emotions begin to rise up of guilt and, and, and shame and um, con- conviction, which those are not necessarily bad things to feel when we're confronted with the truth but I want to close our time with us thinking of Christ, who is the primary way that God has made himself known. And, and, and Jesus himself left a legacy. I mean, have you ever stopped to consider like what Jesus actually left us? And if you haven't, I, I would encourage you to think of it in this way because it's more astonishing, at least to me, to think of what he didn't leave. Jesus had no wife. He had no child. He had no house. He had no clothes. He had no money. He had no business. He had no writings, at least those directly authored while he was on earth. He had no hymns, no portrait, no buildings, no statues, not even a confirmed gravesite. The Son of Man, God in the flesh had none of those things. He was so vague in some people's mind that he's claimed to be a myth. And so what did Jesus leave? The only thing he left behind were people who believed his word. So you could say Jesus left his word and his church. And these two legacies changed the course of history. In fact, that's what history is all about. Because of what Jesus left behind, we sit here today, friends, and we can have hope. Because of what Jesus left behind, and because of his words and his promises and his legacy, we can deal with ours. We can actually have one that's meaningful and that's lasting. And we have a place to go, a person, if you will, a person to go to when we fail. Rulers, nations, professions, industries, families, possessions, political movements, houses, IRAs, 401ks, heirlooms, photos, books, cars, schools, degrees, careers. Every earthly thing that we cherish will pass away. Except for Jesus' word and his church. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus himself said, heaven and earth, what? What does it say? It will pass away. But my words will not pass away. Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Those were Jesus' priorities. His words and his church. And those two things will never pass away. And that's the legacy that Christ left. And friends, somehow, in God's mysterious grace, we can leave the same legacy. The words of Christ, as we pass them down to the generation below us, so that they may believe and become a part of His church that also will not pass away. If you would bow your heads. Joseph, you can come on. I want to ask you a couple of questions, and they're hard questions, but this morning, if you're honest, are you investing in what will last? I mean, if you checked out right now, what would your legacy reveal mattered most to you? Look again, I'm not trying to invoke emotion. I I just want us to ask these honest questions. Because I I feel like I know what most of you would say. I know what I would say. And so thankfully, regardless of where we find ourselves today, whether you are... um, currently 
a mom or a dad and raising children and, 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 and you realize that like I, I have not pointed my kids to Christ like not consistently, not with the way that I live and not with my words, then praise the Lord. This is a moment, like this can be a moment for you as a mom or you as a dad and, and, and you both together sort of plant your feet and say, look, I, I'm not going to let my sin and my shortcomings keep my children from hearing the truth and knowing Christ. And so you can commit today to be faithful. You can trust Christ with your past sin. Don't let your sin keep you from being who you have to be for the kids that are in your life. There's a promise. It's not a template. It doesn't mean everything's going to go the way that we think it should go as parents if we check off these boxes. But by faith today, regardless of the result, we as parents are to follow the commands of the Lord and to tell our kids the truth about who He is. couple or desire kids and don't have them yet. This could be a moment that you together say if we have kids or not to leave a legacy to, like we want to be a couple, we want to be a marriage that leaves a legacy of one that brings glory and honor to God. We want to be a husband and a wife that pour into the generation under us, whether it's your biological children or not. There's just no reason to leave here today guilt-ridden is what I'm trying to say to Christ. He can be trusted. He welcomes sinners. And therefore, today can be a time that you recognize your sin, you repent, you trust that Christ's blood covered that sin, and you get up and you walk out of here different. With a different aim, with different target in what this life is all about. And so, Father, I pray. I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts for the moms and dads and the grandparents that are in this room and for the um, just every individual that's here today Father God that you would help us to see areas of our lives that we maybe just haven't taken the second commandment seriously maybe we just haven't been committed maybe it's laziness or whatever it is that we're not just as committed to your word and we just are okay with lesser things describing you so Father help us we desperately need your help church, ultimately, that deeply desire to see the promise of blessing to the generations that come after us, that they will experience your steadfast love, and by your design, it could come through one of the means to that ends that, that you would use would be our feeble attempt to obey your commands and to live in a way that brings you glory. So help us, Lord. Help us to do that. our children and their children are blessed and experience your steadfast love. I pray this in Christ's name.